everyone, and welcome to the Them Before Us podcast. This is Jen and Katie, and today we're doing a few questions and answers, and we will chat about a few hot topic articles that I've found really interesting recently. But uh, to start us off, Katie, I was chatting with a friend yesterday from my church about what I do and talking a little bit about Them Before Us, and she asked a super interesting question. And I'll tell you the question and how I answered it. And then you, I would love to hear from you a better answer, a more comprehensive answer. But we were chatting about um, them before us and our stance against divorce and particularly no fault divorce. And I talked about, you know, divorce is always bad, but sometimes it might be justified or necessary, right? To protect uh, someone or kids or whatever. And then she talked about, or the friend asked, well, what about divorce if there are no kids? And I sort of felt like, oh, I don't necessarily have, feel like I have a good, strong answer. I just said, I would say, generally speaking, it's not good for society to have people coming in and out of relationships that are supposed to be for life. And especially from the Christian perspective, we would say for life. But even from a secular perspective, that seems very it's kind of your, you know, you're making these commitments, you're breaking them. And, but then I just kind of said, yeah, but particularly we are concerned with children's rights and how it's impacted. So that's kind of our organizational stance. But what would you say to that question of, well, do you guys care about divorce then if there's no kids involved? Well, the reality is that society needs to care about marriage overall, that marriage is, is sets other relationships apart because of these norms that it um that is reflected in this one union or right? norms like um monogamy you're only married to one other person norms like complementarity that other person is the human opposite of you in terms of gender and then the norm of permanence that this is going to last forever and anytime in law you deconstruct one of those norms you're going to have a society-wide effect mm. right and so we're concerned about how we conceptualize divorce in law because it actually has a very real impact on kids. We often talk about how each of those norms has a child-specific benefit. So what no-fault divorce did is it deconstructed the norm of permanence. And even if you participate in a divorce where kids are not involved, the existence of no-fault divorce laws has an impact on how we think about what marriage is, and it's going to destabilize relationships that involve children at some point. Um, and, you know, this article was written by a guy named Scott Yanner, who is a marriage and family expert researcher. Um, and he talks about it like this. He says, when divorce is difficult or impossible to secure, marriage is thought of as an enduring, tighter community, and small irritants can be forgotten or forgiven. When divorce is easy to secure, partners in a marriage tend to think of themselves as individuals first before marriage partners and marriage can be easily dissolved. So what he's saying is that the existence of no-fault divorce laws actually change how we think about marriage, how we approach marriage, easy in, easy out. And so like just the way that we are structuring divorce today actually lowers overall marriage commitment for everybody, those with kids and those without kids. So I would say like, first you have to look at it from a macro level. And a lot of times what we've done in all these marriage and family debates is we have elevated the individual circumstances first, right? We've had that sob story or that one specific case or that person that we know 
that we think, but isn't it okay for them? And we use that like one um, anecdote in essence to overhaul the whole system. So first of all, we need to be concerned with the macro ideas that we're communicating about marriage and family and no fault divorce communicates something that is ultimately damaging to especially kids. Um, and it has a society wide impact on it. Um, but then, you know, I would say, if you look at your own individual life, the reality is that, um, you know, as we talk about in the end of the divorce chapter in our book, a lot of people go through unhappy times in their marriage. And there was, you know, the, what you should do is persevere. You've got to actually learn those skills of perseverance in your marriage. Um, because the truth is you're going to get that even if you move on to somebody who you think is a better match for you. Like if you can't work out the problems in this current marriage, there's a really good chance you're just going to replicate them in your second or your third marriage. Yeah, that's a good point. And we know the stats that say, you know, people who've gotten divorced, then the the chances of you getting divorced in your subsequent marriages go up. And um, this was a stat from the divorce chapter as well. It says a 2002 report from the Institute for American Values found that two thirds of unhappy married adults who chose to stick it out reported happier marriages five years later. And conversely, unhappy couples who divorced were no happier on average than those who stayed together. The cultural sort of belief is that happy adults make happy children, right? So it's good if you if you have kids, but you're unhappy, get out of the marriage, you'll be happier, and then your kids will be happier. We know when we look at all the stats of how devastating divorces for children, that's not true. But now we also know it's not true that the adults end up happier. And what if we made it so much more cost efficient and easier to get all the help you need while mm. you're married, whether that's the counseling or your faith-based support or community support and conversation. And those things were far easier to get and fix that, fix your marriage, you know, while you can verse. And then divorce was a lot harder and a lot more costly. Um, one of the projects that then before us is going to be revealing next year is our children's first HR benefit package, um, where we say all of the benefits that a corporation is going to offer to their employees are going to have a child centric emphasis. And one of the things we're going to do is emphasize the importance of pre-marriage counseling and mid-marriage counseling, because children need parents that are prepared for marriage and that they can stay together for marriage. And that working through your issues is actually a critical you know, part of justice for children. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. Like there does need to be more emphasis. It needs to be easier to acknowledge and work on the challenges in your marriage that everybody faces at some point. And we need to make it more difficult to pursue a no-fault divorce option. Yeah. It's good. All right. Well, I'm going to tell my friend to listen to this podcast so she can Yay. get a better answer. All right. This is an article from Women's Health Magazine. I would love to chat with you about. We posted this on our Facebook and got a ton of comments just reading through it and thinking about this from the children's rights perspective. So it was a really good conversation starter. So I wanted to chat about it with you. The title is, I had IVF as a single woman and it's the best thing I ever did. I love doing parenting my way. As her 40th birthday loomed, Kate decided it was time to start a family alone. The first paragraph says, we will never know how many thousands or millions of women feel they've missed out on having a child 
because they never met the right person to settle down with. But Kate always knew she would do everything in her power to not be one of them. So she's 44 at the time of this article, but she made herself a promise if she hadn't become a mom by 40, then she basically was going to do what it took to do it alone. And it says that she does 18,000 pounds worth of fertility treatments. So now that I know a little bit about our currency exchange, that's, you know, a good over 20,000 US dollars. And now she has a baby. So she said, I got the, to the point that I was going to have to do something to guarantee I would have my own family. And I started looking at all the options. People pointed out in when they were uh, commenting on this, how much her personal pronouns are used. Me, 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 me. I, 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 I. Her first option was going to be to co-parent with a platonic friend who was an ex of hers. So basically do it the all natural way. And then have this like, you know, handshake agreement to raise a child. And then she says that didn't work because she started realizing that her fertility was at risk. So she says, this is really interesting. And then I'd love to hear from you because this is, this will actually tie into our next article too. I was told by several doctors, even though I had good results on fertility tests, I probably wouldn't be able to have a baby with my own eggs. They said my chance of getting pregnant was just 3% because of my age. I didn't know that egg quality declines as you get older. And I wish I had known that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I, I think because we are, you know, you go through the grocery checkout line and you see, I, I, you know, I had twins at age 44 or, you know, um, my, my fertility journey, or I've got, you know, all these celebrities who are like, I started my family when I'm in my late forties. And I think that it sends the message. Like I can totally delay child rearing. No big deal. I can get pregnant easily when I'm in my late thirties or forties. Um, and it's just, I, it, it's perpetuated by all of these like feminist um, narratives, right? That you can have it all and put your career first. And I mean, it's just a lie. Like you are like at peak fertility in your late teens and your early 20s and anything past age 35 is considered a geriatric pregnancy in you know the ob world so yeah the fact that there is so little genuine education about women and their fertility cycles a lot of this too is perpetuated by this birth control mindset that says i determine you know my fertility is is my business i can start it i can stop it i can regulate it instead of like that doing the education about your own body and how it works and um working with your body instead of trying to stop start prevent cajole um so yeah i think that there's so much going on just with women's health so tell me did she um end up using an egg donor or did she get pregnant using her own egg or does she not say she does use her own yeah she does end up using her own egg she was deemed a good candidate for ivf using her own eggs and she was hoping she'd get multiple embryos for future rounds but there's one vital piece missing from the puzzle, sperm. And I was like, I wrote in the notes, a dad. Yeah, you think, you know, like, <clears throat> again, these are sort of those basic bio biolog biological basics that we sort of now think we can mess with. So they point out, so this is from the UK and the UK has laws now that you're not allowed to be basically completely anonymous by 18 the person can know who their father is. So that's something that a lot of countries don't have. 
And then it talks a little bit sort of her, you know, genetics choices. I wanted someone who looked like me. I wanted to know what he looked like. She ends up choosing someone who's biracial for to uh, to fertilize her egg. And then there's a little bit of the, you know, this was really hard because this all happened right before COVID. I'm so glad I did it before COVID or I wouldn't have had a chance to have a baby. And they actually only did one embryo. So she sort of only had one chance. And then what's fascinating is it sort of switches to, here's all the reasons it's actually really great advantage that I'm solo parenting. One of them is they talk about her daughter her name in the story is Iris. That's a, a fake name. Iris needs very little sleep. Like she was a terrible sleeper, apparently. And they describe some of the things that Kate, the mom, does. And then she's like, if I had a partner, like none of this would be possible. Like they're like co-sleeping and she wakes up and feeds her every two hours or whatever. And I just was like, that is such a terrible justification for like a child never knowing her dad. Or she gets to know her dad when she's 18 years mm-hmm. old versus you have that husband and you have the dad in the picture. Maybe he suggests something different than waking up every two hours or co-sleeping. Yeah. Maybe he helps you. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> he helps you. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my husband, you know, I would be like, I am maxed out. I can't do it again. When she wakes up, you have got to take the 2 a.m. shift. And like, it's great to not solo parent. The other thing is like, I, you know, I've co-slept with my kids, especially when they're really young. But it sounds like this girl is, you know, if it's COVID, she's probably three or four at this age. You know, like you can actually, you know, um, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about the consuming mother. Right. The woman who's like, I am going to nurture you to death. I am going to nurture you. And so you remain an infant for, you know, in in perpetually and um like you can actually stunt kids by just nurture 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 compassion compassion at some point a dad is the one who's like you know what she is three she can sleep in her own bed now right like it is time for you to do some separation um so i yeah it's amazing to me and you know when she's like i want to create my family Mm -hmm. and you know just that term my family in her situation requires the child to be cut off from the child's natural family, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these versions of modern family, we often say it them before us, modern family is just code for child loss. She is a single mother by choice. This is one of the varieties of modern family. For her to create her family, the child has to lose part of the child's family. Right. And it absolutely is, you know, emblematic of what we talk about a lot at them before us, which is, an obsessive focus on what adults want to the detriment of the child. Like you can see it on display in her language, in her decision-making and all of that. And her longing to be a mother is good. And it is very, very hard to be 40 and to have your biological clock ticking and to long to be a mother. And we empathize with adults that are in that situation. We just say, whatever kind of longing or loss or suffering you're experiencing, it does not justify violating a child's rights, which is exactly what she did. She's transferring the sadness and longing now. Now the child will have it. Yeah. Yeah, She continues on saying, I think being a single mom by choice, obviously there's exhaustion, but there's less in terms of negative feelings. So now she's saying, I don't feel angry at my partner or family members because of the different challenges of parenting, things like that. And then she says, everything is about me and my daughter 
rather than some external thing or outsider in the mix. When it's kind of to your point, you're not talking about an external thing or an outsider. You're talking about the father of the child. This is, he is inside. He's as inside as it could be, or he should be. So she says, so when she says everything's about me and my daughter, she's missing that for your daughter, you are not everything to her. You know, she's missing something really essential that you've denied her on purpose. They go on. Mom has everything that she wants because the child has lost what she needs. Yeah. And then they finish the article by saying basically everything's great because she has a big network of other people who've also decided to be moms on their own. And then, you know, we've got a massive network of solo moms by choice in East London. We connect a lot. Like chi- like Iris, the children there have a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. And this part really stood out to me. While there's no dad in the setup, Kate has made sure there's plenty of male role models in the mix. She has a granddad, uncle, and two male housemates the small family lives with. Both of the guys I live with are just lovely role models. They're just generally around in the background. They talk to her on a daily basis. And my brother does all that rough and tumble stuff that my flatmates and my dad wouldn't do. I'm just like, when we're thinking, when we, you know, the stats about the most dangerous men to be in a child's life are the unrelated men. And two of them, she's invited to live with them. Hmm. Yeah. So like, First of all, it's so fascinating to me that you'll have people that are single parents by choice or gay couples or whatever. They say, well, they have plenty of female role models. Well, they have a lot of different men in their life. My question is, why does that matter? Why? Why do you want them? Oh, because I really think that they have something to offer my child because I want them to be able to interact with the opposite sex because I don't want them to just be in a female only world. So they are acknowledging that they have cut something out of their child's life that is missing. Right. By simply saying, uh, I'm, we have uncles, we have flatmates, we have grandpas who are playing an important role. I mean, you're literally, you are tacitly agreeing that you have starved your child of something that they need. And here you are trying to piecemeal make up for it. Um, yeah, I, I am um, the whole thing about like unrelated flatmates. Like <laughs> I know a situation personally where a um, single mom who had some kids had a male roommate um, who was there paying the rent and, um, and he ended up murdering her. Wow. <laughs> I know. And that wasn't a romantic relationship. It was a cohabiting male, um, in the home who actually, she did say he is taking on a fatherly role for my kids. They weren't romantically involved, but he's mm-hmm. like fatherly, you know, and he's participating in our little family. Um, and it ended up devolving very quickly and, and, and violently so i mean this whole thing like oh well it's not like we're dating he's yeah well if he's in the home and if he's playing a fatherly role i'm sorry but you're an, you are an absolute idiot you're an idiot yeah. wow if that's what you think this is just going to be i mean hopefully not but st- the statistics are against you and right. you know here's the other thing about women um we are more agreeable and um we are less likely to see threats arise um the truth is that women sometimes need men to be like uh, don't pick up that hitchhiker. Are you an idiot? <laughs> like right. I am such a bleeding heart. I mean, you and I were in the car the other day and we passed, you know, a woman walking on the side of the highway. And I, I was like, Hey, should we go get her? And you know, yeah. my, my husband is just so much more 
alert to threats than I am, honestly. So um, it's sad. It's sad that this me-centric view has starved her daughter of something that she's made, put her in risky situations. And you know, here's the other thing, like we have stories on our story bank um, of kids that were raised in very inclusive and affirming environments, right? With two moms or two dads. And nobody was telling them, hey, you totally need a dad. But very often they wanted a dad anyway. Um, but because nobody in their world was even saying, hey, this is what you should have. Um, like this little girl, Iris, who's growing up, you know, there's a really good chance because she is a human child that she's going to want her dad and she's going to want to be loved by her own father and know the identity of her father. But now she's in this world that is mostly single mother by choice, right? Surrounded by people right. that don't have that, that nuclear family <laughs> setup. And so there's a very good chance that all that normalization and quote unquote inclusivity, it does not remove her longing for a father it simply problematizes or you know her longings because she'll say there must be something wrong with me because yeah. I want this since everybody in my world is in essence communicating that I shouldn't want this right you actually cue it up perfectly because the next part of the article says despite a strong presence of men in her daughter's life Kate admits that Iris has developed a keen interest in daddy's even going so far as to quizzing other children about if they have one. We talk about families a lot, and she does notice and have an interest in daddies in general. She will ask other children if they have a daddy and then tell them that she doesn't, but she has a granddad. Sometimes she points at men in the street or in the shop and asks me, is he a daddy? Which can be quite awkward. Oh, it yeah. just, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you cannot remake the nature of children. And we say it then before us a lot. Um, you will never be able to legislate away a child's longing to be known and loved by their mother and father. This is instinctual. We will either through our culture, law, and technologies recognize these fundamental longings of children or we will violate them. Right. She says, well, basically kind of gaslights her. I talked to her in terms of different families, so she never feels like she's missing out on something. Sorry, she does. She knows she's missing out on something. I tell her that some families have one mommy. Some There are some families that have a mommy and a daddy. And there's some families that have two mommies or two daddies. And then she kind of, the adult, the mom kind of says, I think it's more about us projecting onto them. If we feel sad about being single, or if we feel some kind of way about using IVF or sperm donor, we are the ones who project that onto our kids. So she kind of says, I just have to make sure I don't say or do anything that will make her miss not having a dad. And it's kind of like, yeah, you're not. I think it's because the default position for so many in the culture is love is love. And it doesn't matter. Hey, I surrounded you with caring adults. There's someone who throws you in the air and there's someone who says, hi, how was your morning? And I'm your mom. So what else do you need? You know? Yep. Yeah. I, um, this is the explanation she must have because what is the alternative? The alternative is I've damaged my child by the decisions that I've made. Right. And so now um, she just, and that that's too much, right? You, because if she were to recognize the reality that it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter how many other men I involve in my child's life. She's noticing something she's missing. She longs for the thing that she's missing. And I am responsible for her woundedness. Like, is she going to come to that conclusion? Apparently not. 
And so she has to spin this world where she is going to figure out a way to say, um, it's going to be okay. And I haven't really hurt my child, but it, reality will probably not allow her to hold on to that forever. And if she tries, then her child would just end up feeling more isolated and alone as a result. Yeah. She says, you know, there's some people who have a dad in their life, but they're not, e they're not even good ones. So that's more damaging than not having a dad at all. And then she's like, for now, there's no one that's chosen not to have her or chosen not to see her. And I write in all caps in my notes, you chose for her not to know him or for him not to know her, you know? Right. So it's not, well, it'd be worse if she had a dad who didn't want to see her. It's like, well, it feels kind of worse that you intentionally did this to her from the right. beginning. There was no chance. Yeah. The justification is, uh, well, that's what she has to do. She has to justify it somehow. And this right. is how she's choosing to do it. Yeah. Um, the last sentence is while Kate doesn't know much about the man who indirectly helped her fulfill her dreams of motherhood, she does know that embarking on parenthood as a single mom has been the best decision of her life. And I wrote, um, is it the best decision in Iris's life? Question mark and no exclamation point. Right. Yep. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was not surprising. It sparked a lot of conversation on our Facebook, which is cool. Yeah. And like I, I checked in at different points and everybody, like every, all of our follows were like, okay, good for you, but not good for the kid. Right. And that's what I love about our people and our supporters is they, they know when they're being sold a bill of goods. Right. Um, they absolutely can, they're, they're now trained to look at things from the perspective of the child and not from the perspective of adults. And it's that kind of mindset change that we have to have if we are going to right size our society. Right. That's good. I'm super thankful for the folks that pop, pop up on our social media and or tag us and do comments because it's cool to see that the message is resonating with people. And like, like you've said in our, um, you start the book this way. And we say this on our website, we're not this coalition of scholars or doctors or super smart people, though. There's a lot of super smart people who've contributed to our thinking, but we're a coalition of normal people that once we learned the truth and we have a way to articulate it now, we are telling everyone who will listen, no, we have to think about it from this perspective. And now we're eight, we're equipped to share these things with people. And it really, I feel like is taking off and people are really catching on. Yep. Agree. You're listening to the them before us podcast. Make sure you head over to thembeforeus.com to find us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, donate, and more. Thanks for joining the movement. Okay. The next article I'd love to chat about, and I've had this one saved for a while. This came out earlier in the year, July, I think it was a big piece in Glamour magazine on Aaron Andrews. I don't know if you're much of a sports fan. Katie, do you watch a lot of ESPN? Uh, let me check. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's a big anchor or she's been a big anchor on ESPN, which I think is notable because there's not a ton of women that have carved out a big space on ESPN. But I particularly liked her because she was a co-host on Dancing with the Stars. Mm. So, yes, I find her very likable and she's like seven feet tall and she's beautiful and people really enjoy her personality. 
Um, so she's been a sportcaster for most of her 20s and 30s on for hockey and for football. And then so they wrote this big piece on her and it says, Aaron Andrews wants to change the way we talk about surrogacy. And um, then before us would also like to change the way we talk about surrogacy. But as we go through the article, you'll see that we actually want to talk about it completely opposite directions. So um, I'll start with this first page and then pause because this kind of ties into what I said earlier, this earlier article. <clears throat> she starts by saying, I was very work driven immediately out of college. I just always had this mindset that I wanted to do as much as I could. In my 20s, I remember saying I wanted to do as much as I could before I hit 40. So then if I wanted to take time and have a baby, I would do that. Everything in my life happened really fast when I first landed with ESPN and then I went to Fox Sports. I was work, working multiple sports a week, so my personal life really took a backseat. I started freezing my eggs late. I started at 35. I kind of figured, so geriatric pregnancy, like we just talked about. I kind of figured, all right, I haven't met Prince Charming yet. I don't really know when this is going to happen. I had a feeling I wanted to be a mom, but I was married to my job. Young girls ask me all the time, what would you recommend about sports broadcasting? And I'd say, freeze your eggs, then worry about football. I just wish someone had said that to me in my 20s. So let's pause there. You said earlier, this it's sort of the feminist idea that you can have it all. But what I wonder is, should we be saying to women, you can have it all in a sense, you can have a career, you can have family, but why do people think that you need to have it all and start with, you should just work 80 hours a week for ESPN when you're 20 years old versus the idea of if you find that person that you want to marry and you get married and have children, raise your children and then pursue the other things in your life that you're interested in when you're 40 years old, you know, it feels like cultures completely reversed this in this really interesting way. What do you think? Right. Well, yeah, like we have told women that their career is the most important thing about them. We have told yeah. them that they, if they do not achieve in the workplace, then they're not equal to men. We've told them that staying home with a child or unpaid work of like being a mother is less valuable than your contribution at the office. And so we've told women all of these lies. We've told women um, that they can delay their fertility. And a lot of times, you know, in this modern life, sometimes you can't choose. I mean, like dating is hard these days. It's very hard to find somebody who is like-minded, compatible, especially when you're young, um, because a lot of people have drunk the Kool-Aid of you can put off marriage and family and it's better to put off marriage and family. And, you know, you actually should like go to college, get a stable job, pay off all your debts, own a house, be completely stable, and then you can get married. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, like we've actually totally reframed what marriage is and how you should approach it. Um, and so sometimes you don't have the option of like getting married young and starting to have kids early, but sometimes you do. And a lot of the thing is just how do we reorient our mindset and our priorities when you're younger to think if I have a chance, I should prioritize marriage and child rearing first. Right. And that's my message to women, um, you know, especially because I've I've got four kids. Um, I worked before I had kids. I was a full-time stay-at-home mom. And then I gradually increased my workload um, as my kids got older. I tell women, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. Right. You just can't. And if you are able to order your life, put marriage and family first. Do kids first. 
first. Don't think I'm going to do career first and I can have kids later. Maybe you can, but there's a really good chance that you will not be able to because you're working against the natural systems of your body in terms of peak fertility. Right. Yeah. Like I've, I've had this conversation with different friends before where I know of girls who get on birth control in high school for whatever reason, whether they're sexually active or not, or people that use it like, um, complexion control, you know, for acne and things like that. And then they're on it for what, you know, you get on it at 17, 18 years old, you're on it for the next 10, 15 years. And then you get off of it and we're surprised that people can't get pregnant right away. You know, it's just, everything's reversed and, and messing things up. And then we're seeing that with the advent of technology, who really pays the price for it are the children that are being, like you've said, cut and pasted into, well, you guys didn't fit into my life when I was 20 and I could have pursued this but I chose to wait and now I'm going to do all these weird technological things so I can figure out how I can have a family the way I want the timing I want. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So she freezes a bunch of eggs and then she's dating the guy who will become her husband. So she's dating him um, at the time that she's diagnosed with cervical cancer. So what happens is the all of her doctors and fertility doctors are like, well, now you really need to start freezing your eggs because they're worried about, you know, you're not going to have a chance to have children ever at all because chemo and different things. So she said, then it's very stressful because they are trying to produce as many as possible. And I don't, I, I'll admit, I don't know a ton about what goes into um, actually trying to harvest eggs. I know you were sharing recently at one of the speaking engagements compared to sperm donation, which is like you said, super easy, you know, it takes you like two minutes, three minutes. Uh, Egg donation is really complex. Like it's hormone injections. It's, I mean, it's invasive, right? Yeah. It's, and I'm not an expert on either, but um, the way, you know, (laughs) it's amazing that you have to educate women on their reproductive systems, but you're born with the number of eggs that you're going to have in your life. Uh, That's different than sperm. Sperm is being constantly produced. Eggs are finite. Um, And typically you release one a month, right? Right. Maybe two. Um, And so they're very, very precious. And we actually talk about how, like, if you just want to put a price tag on it, human eggs are probably one of the most expensive commodities on the planet because they're hard to access. They're very, very rare. Um, You've got a finite number of them. And so how if you're going to extract eggs, it's hard. And if you're going to take the, if you're going to incur the risk of laparoscopically extracting the eggs, you don't want to just get one. Right. Lots. And so you inject hormones into your body. Women inject hormones to artificially stimulate their ovaries to release a dozen eggs, 20, sometimes 30 eggs so that when you're going to extract them, you get more than one. And so you're doing all kinds of things to your body that is just throwing it out of whack hormonally, chemically. Um, Of course, you have the risk of of surgery, even though that's somewhat minor. What's going on with your body is, I mean, the risks of like injecting these kind of hormones in your body, the best um, resource on this is a documentary called Exploitation, mm-hmm. which talks about the medical risks of egg extraction um, and the kind of uh, 
horrible things that happen to a woman's body from, you know, ovarian hyperovulation syndrome to like torsions in your, um, your uterine, your, um, your ovaries. And, uh, it's, I mean, you've had women have very, very serious health effects of this. Some of them losing their fertility altogether. And that's so tragic because some of these, um, egg extractions are for your own personal use. But a lot of women are extracting eggs in this manner to sell them. Right. And so these women will then sell what ends up being the last remaining eggs that they have because after this, they have destroyed their fertility. And now they will never have their own biological children, but somebody else will raise their biological kids for them. Yeah. It's hard to disclose to women when it comes to egg extraction, egg donation, and even surrogacy, the medical risks, because we're not studying it. You know, so we can't even, women can't even fully consent to the risks of these procedures because we are not doing research on it. So uh, we've got some idea of the complications that can result, but there's a lot that we still don't know. Yeah. Yeah. She goes into, well, this is one line that I thought was very interesting. She says, so she's still, she's not even engaged yet, but they want to be together. Um, she said, we had to put our big boy, big girl pants on real quick. Once we saw how hard it was for me to make eggs, it was hard for us to do embryos. And then I was dealing with cervical cancer. So I just made a note that she's, these are hard things that they have to go with, that they have to deal with, right? It's hard for me to do this. It's hard for me to do that. Now I have cancer. Okay. And then she goes into some of what you're talking about. Um, you have to wait 10 days for the eggs to mature then you'd make the embryo and then you have to wait another 10 days. Then it's genetic testing. It took years and we were just having tons of failed attempts at getting pregnant. She said she went on her podcast after her seventh or eighth round of IVF that didn't work. And she said, I'm done being quiet. It sucks. It's taken a toll on my body. I've lost hair. My skin's never the same. My body has never been the same. You're just a total cranky B word. You just are because you're pumping all this stuff into your body, your husband, your boyfriend, your family members. They don't know what to say. The medication is the worst. I'm doing the shots. It stings. But then I have to be down on the field because an interception was just thrown. You just have to do it. And like you're saying, they don't, they're probably not told, you know, this is actually what it's going to be like for the next however many years. And then it doesn't work. So repeat the whole process and try it again. But, and, and, you know, the injections happen when you're extracting the eggs. And then that also happens when you're trying to implant the embryos. So it's like, you are jacking with your body. I mean, you are just like on a hormonal yo-yo back and forth. Um, And yeah, I, these women, I mean, listen, she, she does a great job of describing, like it's having physical effects on my entire body, mental effects on my entire body. Um, And these are not small things, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, I'm glad that she kind of disclosed that it's not that easy because I think a lot of corporations, you know, one of the corporate benefits that they list is, hey, we'll help you freeze your eggs for you. Um, so you can kind of put a pause on your family building. And then when you want to build a family, when you're 37 or 42 or 47, ding, no problem. But it's not no problem. It's big problem usually. Yeah. She continues, we decided I'm not getting pregnant. I can't attempt to do any more transfers into my uterus. I'm going to lose these embryos. We don't have many more embryos to work with. That was our biggest problem. We didn't have many. We just decided we would take the surrogacy route because this sucks. 
we're sitting here alone. We're not getting any younger. Um, yeah. And she'll probably get to this, but she had to do all kinds of hormone injections to implant her own embryos that were genetically similar to her. Right. right. Um, at least the eggs were. And, um, that was risky and it was uncomfortable and it was painful and it wreaked havoc on her body. And her solution is I'm not going to do this anymore. Right now. Another woman will do the risk. Yeah. They'll do the injections. They'll do the hormones. They'll incur the discomfort. And um, as we know in our book, there are statistically higher failure rates when there is genetic dissimilarity at play between the surrogate and the child. So if you are pregnant with donor eggs, your likelihood of uh, failure of pregnancy is higher. So her solution to the discomfort, the very obvious discomfort and frustration she was going through is, I'm not going to do this anymore. Another woman's going to do it instead. Yeah. Well, and then we see, so they touch base with surrogacy companies. They thought it was going to work. They put two embryos in, a boy and a girl. We knew it was a risk because we didn't have many embryos. Um, we had a lovely family we were paired with. We transferred the embryos. We were so excited. We lost the two babies. And she doesn't say at this point how many have they lost. But like we've talked about when we talk about third-party reproduction and IVF, this is a profoundly not pro-life industry. These are like fertilized eggs, children, and it's their biological children that they've lost now over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And it's obviously, um, you know, there are, there's wanton disregard for embryonic life in this industry through donating to research, through perpetual freezers, through grading, selecting, discarding. Um, But also it's not child-friendly technology in the sense that the massively high failure rates, which increase the older that you get. Mm -hmm. And so even if a family is trying to say, we're going to implant all of our embryos, it's still a high risk procedure for kids, for the babies. Yeah. So they looked for a new surrogate organization. They got paired with five different women. And then the doctor was really picky. He would pair us with a woman. We would meet her on zoom. We'd get excited. She'd get checked out. He'd call and say, no, we did it five times. And then we found our girl. It sounds like it was not someone they knew ahead of time. Okay. So then quote, they get pregnant, you know, people like you're pregnant. You guys are pregnant. Like she gets a phone call that says that it just Mm -hmm. such weird language. I understand that they have to think of it that way. Right. Because you don't want to think about how weird it is and how well to the baby the mom that the baby knows is the mom that the baby's inside, right? The the, per, the only person they know for nine months. Yeah. And that, that just goes back to so much about this issue. And this, this battle is, is one that has to do with language. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me because I'll read reports, you know, it's so funny, the British, you know, be like talking about these two men and, and it'll say they fell pregnant, right? Which is kind of the British thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the British way of like, she became pregnant, but they fell pregnant as if they are just like a heterosexual couple that are becoming pregnant and like they got pregnant or it's, you know, think about the previous story. It's my family. Uh, You know, this is our daughter. We are her parents. And no, 
you are maybe her parents in a contractual sense, but you're not her parents in a biological sense, not in a natural law sense, right? Your family was predicated on destroying her family. Right. You know, you did not become pregnant. You contracted another woman to become pregnant with children who may or may not be your genetic children. And so like they are really trying to co-opt this language in an effort to normalize these family structures that are predicated on child loss. So making sure that we use the right language. No, you didn't get pregnant. A, another woman was hired to gestate your child. She mm -hmm. is pregnant. Mm -hmm. So like we, you know, just really don't let them pull the wool over your eyes simply by normalizing this, by co-opting terms that used to actually mean something and used to actually um, identify the realities of the child. Yeah. Yeah. She continues on experiencing pregnancy with our surrogate was amazing. When the baby was starting to get bigger, she'd turn on the playoffs because she'd say, I want him to hear your voice, like with the TV on. Um, she had done it before. She's an angel. She has two kids of her own. She's a good mom. She's a great wife. She's a fantastic friend. So our friendship with her and her husband just started growing and growing and progressing. They'd go to lunch with them. They went to a hockey game together. I know the one thing my husband kept saying to people is, it's our baby. It's our baby. And I was like, you don't have to say that, but that worked for him for a while. You know, he wanted to just say, this is our DNA. I didn't know how What's I was fascinating to me. Sorry to interrupt is yeah. why does it matter? Why? Why does it matter that it's your DNA? That was so important to the dad. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a, it's a recognition that biology matters, but it's so funny because a lot of surrogate pregnancies are using the DNA of somebody else mm -hmm. and they'll, you know, in those situations, it doesn't matter. And so it's just another example of biology matters when adults want it to. Right. And when they don't want it to matter, then it doesn't matter. Right. But the reality is that for the kids, it always matters. Well, and remember our um, reciprocal IVF. We did that as a hot topic episode. And it was two women who they used their egg with the, the same sperm donor and then put the egg in the other woman because they wanted the partner to gestate the other woman's baby. Right. They were acknowledging that there's a bonding and something happens for nine months in the womb. So for People Magazine that's doing the article, all of a sudden that's really important and awesome. And there's bonding that happens there. And then when People Magazine does a different celebrity surrogacy story, no mention of the baby that bonded for nine months in the womb and then was taken away and handed to the two guys in the hospital bed. Yep. The bond is important when the adults want it to be important. It's unimportant when they don't want it to be important. I mean, it literally is just like, if the adults want it, it's good. If the child needs it, it does not matter if the adults don't want it. I mean, like it yeah. is such an adult obsessed, you know, mentality. Yeah. Right. Aaron continues. I didn't know how I was going to do during birth. I didn't know how it was going to go. But when that nurse grabbed me and said, she wants to hold your hand, I was like, let's go. I grabbed her hand. My husband and I turned into sports fans. We were like, you got this. Come on. It was awesome. We have this one picture that's really, really special. They put Mac, who's the baby, on her chest as they were cleaning him up. And my husband was cutting the cord. In the photo, I'm kissing her head. It's the picture of what surrogacy is. Mm -hmm. Which I was like, no, the picture of surrogacy is the baby getting taken away and not seeing that person again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that is the picture of surrogacy. That is the picture you want surrogacy to be. 
unfortunately, the re and and you know she has described what I think is the most sympathetic case mm. um, of surrogacy. Like it's right. the child's genetic parents. The child's going to have a mother and a father. They have a genuine relationship with the surrogate. Um, like all of the adults end up being happy at the end of the procedure. Um, but that's a bit of a smokescreen for what surrogacy often is, which is the child going home to a motherless home. Oftentimes, the child going home with unvetted potentially dangerous strangers, the child being trafficked across different borders, disappearing, we never track them, we don't know what happens to them. Um, there's been all kinds of news coming out of Crete and Ukraine about trafficking rings of children under the guise of surrogacy. I mean, the normalization that she wants to, you know, change the way we talk about surrogacy, uh, that might really suit her and her husband well. But overall, that is going to be a massive loss for children across the world who are created through these technologies. Right. She finishes the article by advocating basically for this for everyone. She's talked about a few different organizations and she's saying, you know, it's not right. It's not fair. We need to be able to help other people do this. She says, it's just unfair. Everybody should be able to deal with this joy and have all this baby crap around their house. So she's an advocate now for, you know, reproductive technologies and IVF. And it is like you're saying, it's just a good picture. The whole thing, this article and the previous one of it's all adult centric thinking. And if adults want it, it's good regardless of how it impacts children. Yep. Yep. So uh, our solution is um, pull the focus off the adults, even though she experienced some very significant longings, losses, um, We've got to pull the focus off the adults. We've got to put it onto the kids. A child-centric view is the only one that is going to be able to beat back um, these violations of the rights of kids because adults have major platforms and they can write articles and um, you know they can forge contracts. Kids don't, they can't do any of that. All kids have is you guys and us to advocate on their behalf. Right. Well, it's been a great conversation. I hope if you've been listening, you had something to think about we would love to hear your feedback on this episode or you can email us at us at thembeforeus.com with any comments or if you have a share a story to share we'd love to hear that as well thanks for the conversation katie and everyone listening thanks for joining the movement whether you are religious or irreligious whether you are single married gay or straight if you are defending the rights of children, you are one of us. Thanks for joining this global movement to put them, the children, before us, the adults.